The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How is everyone out there? We're honored to be joined by a special guest. Daniel Baldwin is an actor of television and movies, more than a hundred of them, as well as a director and radio personality. He hosts the Daniel Baldwin Show. His famed brothers, in alphabetical order, Alex, Stephen, and William, are also actors. He's also a very open and honest proponent of recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. An alumni of Sober Recovery Center, you can visit SobaMalibu.com. We're really honored to welcome the man who says good morning to us each and every morning on Twitter with a simple, I'm up. So thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. Hey, brother. It's nice to hear from you, Paul. What's happening? Just ready to talk to you. We've uh, we've been in communication a few times on Twitter, and it's it's really cool to get to talk to you. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really happy to be here. Is there any significance for you to the morning time? Well, I host, uh, I'm a co-host of a show that goes from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. called the Gomez and Lisa Show, where I've now been added into that mix. So I'm on a radio show three hours a morning from 6. I get up at 3 to get to work and ready for my show at 6. And then I have an hour off, and I do a second show on ESPN from 10 to 11 called the Daniel Baldwin Show. So, (laughs) yeah, getting up early is, is certainly in my wheelhouse, that's for sure. Do you like the mornings? I do. I I get up that early. I mean, I could get up at, you know, 4.30 and get there on time, but I'm a kind of a, I, I actually traditionally was the time that I spent with my wife, Robin. She and I, you know, before the kids would get up, before there'd be a lot of noise, would sit and have our coffee together and sometimes giggle, sometimes talk, sometimes just kind of have a fire going and really not say much. And go through our emails and go through our different stuff. But that's our real kind of peaceful, quiet time together. So what led you to being on the radio these days? Well, I have my children uh, under an emergent order from the court. Uh, Sadly, their mother has been accused of drinking and driving with the children in the car. So... I was given custody and I've had custody of the children now for 10 months. And I, and I moved to upstate New York to be closer to my mother. And suddenly I have both my kids full time. So I, I started looking at things that could keep me in or around upstate New York so I could be home full time with my kids. And the opportunity to go back to sports, uh, I was a, a one time I was a host for. I took Tom Arnold's place on a Best Damn Sports Show period on Fox Television for about a half a year, and I really enjoyed doing that. So there was an opportunity to do an ESPN sports show, and uh, I thought, you know what, that'll keep me home. There's not a lot of money in it, but it'll keep me busy, and uh, and we'll see where it grows to. Well, it grew pretty quickly. It's now the number one downloaded show on ESPN in Central New York, and I've been doing it for only about three months. So. I'm looking at the potential of podcasting that. And then this other morning opportunity came. And uh, I decided to take a look at that, too. So 
you know, my wife and I are looking at doing a, a couple of other shows together. So I'm just trying to start building some things here in central New York. We just built a, a big $15 million film studio in DeWitt, New York that I guess there's been some difficulties with how they're going to facilitate getting clients to come in there. So I have a TV series that uh, I, I started shooting already. Um, it's uh, an interesting um, piece about a guy who was an FBI profiler. So I shot the fall scene and now the winter scene. And in the spring, I'll go into full-scale production and finish the pilot. So I'm keeping busy up here. A lot of exciting stuff there. What misconceptions do you think there are about Daniel Baldwin? Uh, well, um, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, people, I, I, it's very hard to outrun the bullet that is your past, you know, so because, uh, in my opinion, you need to take responsibility and accountability for the things that you've done. I certainly have done that. I, I, I had a highly publicized addiction problem. It's been many, many years since that time. But that still rears its head from time to time, you know. It doesn't help that somehow Wikipedia has a terrible shot of me in a rest photo, you know, some of the things that yeah. uh, I've had to I've had to take in stride. But uh I'd say that uh the thing that people don't know is that I dedicate a vast majority of my time helping young addicts both male and female, go into recovery, and I'm not compensated really in any way for doing that. So, um, and, I, and I do more of that now than I do of acting, radio, or anything. I do that on a daily basis. So you would say that that is your greatest purpose? Well, I serve God, uh-huh. uh, and, and I believe that the Lord gives us all different skill sets, and I think I've uh, been fortunate enough to have a a variety of, 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 of clubs in my bag, if you will. So, uh, uh, you know, I think that one of the, one of the misconceptions, if you will, is gosh, he's such a great guy. He does all these great things for people and saves lives. Well, you need to read step 12. And step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening, you reach out to the addict or alcoholic that still suffers. I do that for my sobriety as well. Not that I don't do things to help people maybe above and beyond the call, but this also helps guarantee me that for the rest of today, after having this conversation with you, being of service to the two other people I'll probably place in the rehab today alone, um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it till 12 o'clock tonight and not use again. And that's a great, great thing for me and my sobriety. How important is it, do you think, for a person to have that greater purpose? Well, uh, for me, you know, and I, I, I I'm not a born again Christian that tells other people where they're wrong or what they need to do. Or I have, you know, relatives pretty close to me, but by this time in the conversation already would have had a Bible out telling you why you're going to go to hell and so on and so forth. So, I believe for me, it's, uh, my religious beliefs are just like my sobriety. They're a program of attraction. If you like what you see or you want to have a conversation with me about the Lord, I'm happy to do that and tell you how I got to where I am, how bad my life was before I found Jesus Christ in my life and talk with you or even mentor you or do whatever I can to be of service to you. My entire life now 
Uh, you know, here's a great example. So my wife and I are talking about, you know, should we move to this other town that's close by that is a little more populated and a little more happening? And we have potential things to shoot at this old farmhouse. We have a 200 year old house in upstate New York and we just redid the whole thing. And there's a couple of other job opportunities and a possible situation in Florida. And I said to Robin, I said, you know, Rob, I'm going to do it like I do everything else in my life. God will make it really apparent to me when it's time to choose. So I'm going to continue to be of service and I'm going to continue to serve God. And then something will just be so apparent that someone will say, here's what you know you need to do, or a sign will come to me that's really, really obvious. And then God will decide for me. And, and that's how I live my life. So for this particular human being, being of service and having a purpose is, is paramount. Do you think everyone has something that they seriously struggle with or some kind of serious problem that they're fighting? I don't know what, you know, what the definition for any individual for serious is, but I know life has certainly has its struggles. My wife says a great to me. She says, you know, we're all souls just trying to get through life. Uh, and, and I believe that's true. You know, I, I think that we all through different times, there's great peaks and great valleys. What, what I think you strive for is some type of consistency and to try to keep that level and certainly have it, you know, aimed towards the peak side if you can. But no, I, yeah, I think everybody has their issues. How serious they are, you know, depends upon a lot of times what kind of risks you're willing to take. Hmm. Some people, they have this habit of demonizing the people who have addictions. They'll say things like, oh, he's just, you know, he's just a loser, or he's, he, it's his choice to do this, or, you know, whatever. How many choice, how many chances are they going to give this guy? How would you respond to that? Well, I would say a couple of things. Number one, you have Joey and you have his twin brother, Timmy. They're identical twins. Joey has brain cancer. He's got two big tumors on his front left lobe, and he's not looking good. And he, we get him all the treatment, and they actually carve open his skull, and they take out the tumors, and they radiate him, and they medicate him, and he goes into remission. And you're all pulling there for Joey. You're having barbecues and fundraisers. And Timmy has a heroin problem, and you don't classify him as having the same disease as Joey. You're not convinced of it. You don't follow the fact that the AMA has absolutely identified addiction as a disease. It's a mental health issue for sure. There's a genetic predisposition that goes hand in hand with it, meaning that he had almost no choice because of a genetic rate that's in the chain that gave him the predisposition to most probably, if activated, going to have an addiction problem. And with all of that evidence, you still say Timmy had a choice and Joey got a bad break. Well, I got news for you. He had just the same bad break as Joey did. Timmy's in trouble. He's sick. He went in there and it was a tumor and he got it treated and he went into rehab and he went into sober living and he went through the same length of treatment that Joey did. You'd be pulling for him because you believe cancer is serious. The problem is, is that Americans in the world don't really fully acknowledge and, and actually accept the fact that Addiction is a disease, which is Latin for dis-ease. And there is certainly a dis-ease in someone who wants to take fentanyl-laced heroin 
and stick it in their arm and inject it, knowing full well they may die as a result of doing it. So there's something wrong with that person, or everyone would do it. You'd be born doing it, and all of us would do it all the time. So there's something wrong with that kid. Now, he gets sober, and he stays sober for a year, and he relapses. And this happens over the course of three or four years. It happens every six months. And you turn around and you say, oh, my God, this kid's such a loser. He had plenty of breaks. We got him in the rehab. He couldn't stick it out. He screwed up. But Jim Kelly, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, now has his third battle with cancer, and they're about to do surgery on him sometime this afternoon. And we're all praying for Jim because we acknowledge cancer, although he has had a relapse. He's had he's out of remission, and he has a problem. And everyone's going to pray for Jim. And I love Jim. He's a personal friend of mine. But he's no different than Timmy to me. He's sick. He's sick and he needs our prayer and our help. And so once we ex- we acknowledge the fact that these people that have this disease are indeed sick and have a disease, you'll see the insurance companies roll over and start to actually give them the coverage that they need. This is the unique thing about the Soba Recovery Center. Soba and Greg Hanley, its founder, wrote down all of the things that worked and all of the things we knew that didn't work. And he came up literally with a scientific mathematical equation of percentage. 90% of the people get, when they get this treatment, this treatment. And then he came up with a correlation for length of stay with long-term sobriety. And he said mathematics is a science, not an arguable science. It is a factual science. No matter how you cut it, when you add two plus two plus two, it equals six. Dissect it any way you want. It always comes out six. That's a fact. When you take the number of people that go into the standard stereotypical stay of 30-day insurance for recovery, less than three out of 100 stay sober for one year. Now, that's a system that's founded on absolute failure. Less than 3% out of 100 stay sober for even one year that stay for the standard insurance stay. Now, you double that to 60 days and it immediately leads to nine. Go to 90 days and it goes to 15 Go to six months and it goes to 45. And you ready? If you go to one year of recovery, that doesn't mean rehab. That means a program. So you go into rehab, then you go to de- you go detox, rehab for 30 days, PHP for 20 days, and then you go into sober living for another nine months, whatever the rest of the year is. 95% of those people that do that stay sober for multiple years. You would think that it would be standard to send them for one year, wouldn't you? Yeah. So... You know, this, this is, if you want to pay for a kid, the most expensive part of the stay is the rehab part. So the insurance companies will pay forty, fifty thousand dollars three or four times and send you that, but they won't send you to something that costs 85000 for one full year. For sober living is way less money. It's like, you know, uh, 5000 a month or something like that by the time you're into your fourth month. So, so what? Put them in there for $5,000 a month for another eight months. Instead of forty grand one time and the fifty grand the first time ninety. And for ninety thousand you're in and out for the entire thing as opposed to fifty thousand four times, which is two hundred thousand. And and even after all four of those times, less than three percent of them stay sober for a year. It doesn't make any sense. Hmm. So so Hanley and Soba took a look at that model and said, We really don't want you to come if you're not gonna stay for a minimum of six months and we really would prefer you commit to a year. That's why his program has, and that's where I graduated from after nine times of going. And I finally stayed sober for multiple years because I, I listened to what they told me and I did what they said, and their program is the best in the country. So 
other than this looking at the the time instead of this simple oh yeah you're going to go to 30 days what did you find was different about soba well there was a couple of things that were significantly different and when i when i talked about the pros and cons list that hanley wrote down one of the things was he has a bi-weekly staff meeting on an individual client basis so you and i go in paul and i have a child abuse sexual history and you have a uh you know a, a mother or father that beat you physically you know everybody usually has some type of underlying issue but the actual addiction itself is a byproduct of some issue that you probably have some are trauma some are you know, death some are whatever it is abandonment issues whatever it might be so when you're in there this is one of the reasons why it takes months you know, if you're a guy that doesn't trust somebody very well and you're in full-blown addictive mode, you think in 30 days you're going to sit in a room and start telling a complete stranger your inner darkest secrets? Probably not. No. That will take months to establish that type of trust and those types of repetitions before you're going to start to really get down to the stuff you need to be talking about. So your care at SOBA continues to evolve and change, unlike many of the, or all of the others that I went to, which were kind of a one-size-fits-all. We're all in the same group. We're all talking about the same thing. We're all working on the same project, have the same workbook. What happens at Sober is suddenly my work, my work stuff, the books that I get are coming from my therapist that are very different than, than the kid next to me. And the work pages and the things I'm working on and the things I'm encouraged to talk about in group have to do with my specific isms and needs that I have. That's very rare. I've never seen it in any other program where your complete care is absolutely individual to you, and that's what it is at Soho, which is why another reason why they have such a huge success rate. Is here's what happens stereotypically. Even when you stay for 90 days, without individual care, you're only brushing on some of the issues as they come up in group. So now you've taken the drugs away, you've stabilized them physically, and now you're bringing up these big, deep emotional issues for them in a protective environment. And as you start stirring up the feelings and everything and the thoughts that go on with those issues, you say, okay, it's time to go home. And you leave them in an absolute quandary and a mess emotionally because they're now just starting to talk about some of the stuff that screwed them up to start off with. And then you send them on your own. The first thing they're going to do is, I don't want to feel that. They get high. And they try to numb the feeling again. That's why you need to keep it for a long time. What does it feel like when you finally speak your truth? Everyone has usually some kind of original wound. Something they, they just they dare not speak about. What is it like when you let that out? Well, for me, I went through, I, I went to a doctor named Gerald Rosansky. He was just such a beautiful, great, uh, he's my, one of my heroes. And it was after I got out of Soba. So Soba, I actually stayed 127 days inpatient and 18 months I stayed in the Soba living. So I was in Soba for, you know, close to two years. <laughs> but it was when in that 18-month period in sober living that I went weekly to see my therapist. And uh, and I did a lot of that work uh, in private with him. Um, but once I was able to look in the mirror and take some accountability for me, the guilt and shame of what I had done to my children, my exes, my career, my family members. I mean, there was a lot of, it, it had piled up on me. And so to, uh, to have exercised all those 
those demons uh, took a lot of weight off me and my life started getting a lot more joyous and happy and free. Do you think humility is important? Yes, for sure. You know, God will humble you if you don't humble yourself. So you have a choice to do it on a voluntary basis, and it's far more palpable with yourself because when God comes over and decides to humble you, you know, he blows houses down or he takes lives or he does, you know, you can, you can get humbled real quick by the Lord if, if you're not careful. So um, I, I walk with a big stick, but I, I walk with it really quietly. So what does Daniel Baldwin do when life is chaotic? Um, right now I'm sitting in the bathtub with my wife. And so that was because I had a chaotic morning. So I'm, I'm, I've been soaking this entire time. Do I say hi? Hi. <laughs> this is a first. So, yeah, you're, 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 you're doing this interview. We are absolute a la carte nude and we're in the we're, bathtub. We're on a stretch. <laughs> this kids are, kids are at school and Robin was so excited. She goes, Oh my God, get in the tub. You do your interview. Then I'm gonna we're gonna I'm gonna get a facial afterwards. I'm gonna get all primped and <laughs> and uh gonna chill today and then I'm gonna make my family a beautiful dinner and start it all over again tomorrow. <laughs> I should recommend this to more of the guests. Look <laughs> <laughs> how chill and articulate I am. <laughs> we're talking with Daniel Baldwin, actor, director, recovery advocate. I wanted to ask you, is there any commonality that the Baldwin brothers have? Well, yeah. Alec is sober for, like, he's all the way back to, like, 85, I think. He's got 30 years sober. Stephen has over 20 years sober. Um, I would say that both of my sisters have had eating issues before and weight issues, so they they probably have, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly plenty of my nieces and nephews and people in my family. So addiction is definitely in our family. Uh, and we have, um, you know, a lot of charitable work that we do. Uh, we, My mother has the Carol M. Baldwin Breast Cancer Research Fund of Central New York that we all run around and do events for and raise money in hopes to find a cure for breast cancer at Upstate Medical Center here in Syracuse. So, uh, yeah, we have uh, Alec is coming up uh, tomorrow. And he'll be on my my ESPN show for two hours on Friday, and we'll probably rag each other and talk about all kinds of fun stuff. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm 57 years old, but I feel when I'm around my family like I'm still 15, and nothing's changed. Does Alec look at himself like the leader of the Baldwin brothers because he's the oldest? Uh, well, Josh, I don't know how Alec would answer that question. I, I, I certainly. I'm probably not qualified to answer that. I would say that my sister Beth is the oldest and the matriarch of the family more so than Alec is. Uh, I think it would be silly to not identify Alec as the biggest star. You know, certainly he's had the biggest credits and made the most money and all that other stuff. You know, it's interesting because I asked him recently, I said, in a hundred years from now, I said, whose life do you think will have more influence, yours or mine? And he said, well, you know, I mean, I, I'd have to say that my career, I said, I agree. Your career and the movies you made 
in a hundred years from now, almost every movie I've ever done, probably no one will ever talk about or do anything. I said, and there may be some of the accomplishments that you've done in, in film. They may still look at the hunt for an October or they may still look at, I said, but that's not what I'm talking about. Talking about when you get in your car and drive into someone's living room and take their 22 year old twice overdose son and convince him to go to rehab and get on the plane with him and fly him there and deliver him and then visit him once a month for six months, 12 months and watch him end up sprouting into a good man again and, and being responsible and a, and a part of the community and an advocate for sobriety himself. And then he has kids and it's the people he touches at work and the, and the, and the brothers and sisters and mother and father that thought they lost their son and brother. And you look at the number of people through just helping one kid and walking them through it, and it could be a thousand people's lives that you touch. Well, I put thousands of those kids into recovery now. So when I look at that a hundred years from now and I see their great grandchildren and I think, you know what? Had I not done what I did to help that kid, none of those people might even be here right now. So again, I asked and I looked at him and I said, imagine if I could get you to help me doing what I'm doing. Because if I think I could be an influence, imagine how much of an influence it would be if I could walk into a room or an auditorium with my older brother with his magnanimous personality and how bright he is. And he decided that he was going to be an advocate for sobriety. He could touch 10 million lives compared to me. But at the end of the day, I think my legacy will be when, when I have to go to the gate and I have to meet the Lord, I, I believe he's going to look now and say, you know what? I appreciate the comeback that you made because you were really screwing it up there and you took a lot of ability that I gave you and you wasted it for a long time. But you turned it around and you did the right thing and you were of service and he's going to let me come in. Man, that is incredible. What a way to look at at, at the at the ability of a person. You You don't have to be a star to make a difference in someone's life. So, man, it's a domino effect. I tell a lot of guys who come up to me and they say to me, I could never repay you. I said, you don't owe me anything, but you do owe. Hmm. You don't owe me anything, but you do owe. Because it was freely given to me, and I wasn't worth a damn when it was given to me. Guys believed in me and believed in the program and believed in what they were doing. Had it not been for my meeting Greg Hanley, which a lot of people say to me, why do you run around and do so much for a sober and Greg Henley? I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him, for sure. I, and I told him, I, I can never repay you. You know, I went to the biggest Hazleton, Sierra Tucson, you know, Betty Ford, this one. That one. I went to all the ones that were supposed to be the best ones, and I didn't. I got nothing out of it. It wasn't until I met him, and he believed in me, and he helped me. And that program saved my life. That's why. I, that's what it's about, man. That's what the program is about. So a lot of these young cats, I've got a hundred guys that I could pick up the phone and then one phone call, they would fly to me, they would be to me because they know. They know I'm not asking them to do anything for me. I'm not asking them to build my house. or I'm asking them to help me with another guy. Hey, you got a guy that's out there who's in El Segundo. Can you drive down and get him and get him to me? Yeah, man, what time? Send me, text it to me, I'm on my way. That's how we work. That's how we roll. That's how, that's the Hanley Sobo way. That's how we do it. Who are you in awe of? Um, you know, I'm not in awe of really many people. Um, 
I'm, I'm in awe of my wife, and I don't say that because she looks really good naked in front of me right now. <laughs> I say I say that because I continue to learn lessons from her. She's kind of like that. You know, they say that ridiculous line about a coach or an athlete or whatever, and they say behind every great man is a great. That's not it. I, I'm, I'm behind her for sure. She's far more learned and experienced, and um, my wife's what's called is what's called a medical intuitive. Um, she has some almost to, to the point of psychic abilities about diagnosing people when they're sick, and so I kind of, you know, I do things that I'm more of a soldier. You know, I'm more of a guy that, you know, you put a big bag of rocks in front of the house and you say, all those rocks have to move over here. I'm the guy that doesn't stop even if the sun comes down, the rain is pouring, the heat gets really hot. I keep moving the rocks until every last rock is moved. My wife's the one that decides where the rocks go. You know, I mean, she's, she, that's what she is in my life. She's my, she's my general. So I'm pretty, pretty, pretty awe of her. I've always been in awe of Jesus Christ, my savior. I mean, a lot of my mother in some ways, um, how the, the whole thing that she was able to do with six kids with such a limited amount of funds to have cranked out four boys and two girls that have done pretty well in life. I think, uh, that's a testimony to her intestinal fortitude and her imagination and her dedication to being a mother. So she, she awes me some, but not many other people. My children awe me. Because they're sponges and they're these amazing sculpting clay projects that God dropped for me one day and said, okay, here it is, big lump of clay, let's see what you do with it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I watch them as I continue to mold them and chisel and massage and sponge and paint and, you know, you just name it, I'm constantly working that piece of clay and they're pretty awesome. So, real fun to, Watch them evolve. So I'm kind of in awe of that. That's about it. What's the best thing about being Daniel Baldwin? Uh, twelve thirty tubs right now, man. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best thing about being? Um, you know, I would say that my uh, my perseverance, my my. Uh, my my work ethic. I sometimes will tweet these little short videos saying, "Never let them outwork you." You know, never. I, I've never really met anybody that I know that outworks me. If it t- requires getting up at one in the morning and and going until ten o'clock at night, and I'm the guy that closes his eyes for five minutes and gets right back up and goes back to work. And I'd say my work ethic is something that's pretty pretty good. Well, one of the wonderful things about communication is you can reach people anywhere. So for anyone who's listening in to this, as you're in the tub, <laughs> what would you say to anyone who's who's listening? You can't keep it unless you give it away. We, we live in a society, particularly in the United States, where we work, 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 work in order to take two weeks of vacation. Enjoy your life. Give it away to somebody else. Serve, serve others. What can I do every single day? I ask myself. It might just be holding a door. It might just be, but every single day of my life, I do something for another human being. 
every day. There is not a day in my life in the last 30 years that I have not done something for someone else. I wake up every single morning at 3 o'clock in the morning. And I go downstairs and I light the candles that my wife likes lit. And I set her coffee mug and I set the coffee and I fill the coffee maker and I put her little favorite spoons on top of her mug. And I have that all set up and the fire already burning before she even gets up every single day. I do that for her. Because that tells her how important she is to me and how much I love her that I take the time to do that. Let's her know how special she is. That's just something I do for her. I do something for other people every day, no matter what. That would be the message I would want to give away to other people. Do something for someone else. Mm-hmm. Who is Daniel Baldwin? How would you define yourself? Hmm. Um, I'm just a servant of God. That's who I am. Just another soldier. I have one more question. It's kind of lighthearted. Here it comes. (laughs) I have heard that you once had the opportunity to sing with Frank Sinatra. It's very true. (laughs) Now, I understand that you sang with him on a golf course, Witchcraft. I sang Witchcraft with him, that's true. (laughs) So my question is, and don't tell us the title of the song, You're in a perfect place to sing. You're in a bathtub. If he had said, pick another song, sing us a line from what your alternate song would have been. (laughs) You want me to sing the song right now? Yes, sir. Well, I'm not warmed up. Um, (laughs) I would have shocked him. I wouldn't have sang in a raspy voice witchcraft. I would have looked him in the eye. Now, I'm going to do this without warming up, so hopefully I don't crack too bad. Are you ready? Yes. Listeners, if they want more about Soba, it's SobaMalibu.com. There's also SobaMesa.com, SobaNewJersey.com, and SobaTexas.com. Mr. Daniel Baldwin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for doing this. Bro, thank you so much for having me. Praise God and God bless you. God bless you, sir. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, man. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time.